we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. We're still on holidays, so I've cobbled together another highlights package for you. Enjoy. Also, I've got a link to an article. I'm not sure what to make of this website, but their suggestion was that Donald Trump has created a new division within the Health and Human Services Office for Civil Rights with the express purpose of banning mandatory vaccinations across the country. Um, and they say that he's established something called the Conscious Conscience and Religious Freedom Division um, with the express purpose of um, getting rid of mandatory vaccinations. So, Paul, being a libertarian... What's your well, position on that? That's your take on, on my Well, well you politics. are more libertarian-minded on issues. Yeah, look, I, I, I don't think I would describe myself as quite a libertarian, but, yeah, you know, I, I obviously don't like too much state control over people's choices in life. So what's your position with vaccinations generally? I, 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 you know, I mean, that article makes me wonder if he'll get that through the American military, and I very much doubt it because Sorry. the American military will be vaccinating all their personnel. In the military? Oh, absolutely. Right, because the military will say if you want to be in the military... You, you, have to, be you, have to, yeah. you have to stay healthy. But they just, want reliable people. But what about the general population? Do you think vaccinations... Should be mandatory? Yes. Um, I don't, actually. Right. Now, I think, you know, as with other things that we've discussed, I think the way forward is education, is public education. In other words, teach giving children to start with good critical thinking skills so that they can evaluate the evidence and they can make their own decisions. But obviously... But a child can't. I was just getting to that. So obviously they grow up, they become, you know, good, responsible parents, and then they're equipped to make good choices about what vaccinations their children need. Because, I mean, if you made it mandatory, you know, I mean, we've seen... In medical history, there have been some anomalies, as we know. There have been some, some dark periods where uh, emergent medical technologies and, 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 and therapies have been used uh, and then later found to be either ineffective or posi you know, positively uh, harmful. So I'm, I'm pretty much against medical things being mandatory, but I do think... There's a strong case for what? strong advisability being given to certain things. Obviously, we vaccinate babies for a range of illnesses, and it, on the whole, it appears to be a very effective and safe uh, thing to do. So what do you say to the young 12-year-old boy on his deathbed from measles? Oh, don't put who, that on me. Who, I, says, who says to the state... Why did you let my parents get away with this? Why wasn't I vaccinated? Uh, the parents are going to be responsible for it, obviously. But to some extent, uh, the state could be responsible by refusing to make it mandatory. Yeah, but look... Because the kid can say, look, 
I needed protection and I needed other adults in the room to get me immunised when my stupid parents wouldn't allow it, the stupid Jehovah's Witness or whatever they were. It's an imperfect world, Trevor. Yeah. And look, I, I just, I'm you... just very wary of giving the state total control over our lives and yes. vaccinations is just part of that. I mean, yeah. I, you know, life is inherently risky and I know yes. that I, I'm with you. I agree yeah. that vaccinations are effective and probably a very good idea. I'm just very reluctant yeah. to give, you know, total control to the state because, I mean, we might have a, a relatively benign state right now. We, we can't be completely sure that we'll always have a benign state. But mm. once you put laws like that or regulations in place, it's very hard to pull them back. A slippery slope. It, it really is. I mean, we just don't know. In 50 years' time, mm. we might be living in a dictatorship. Those laws are already in place. How are we, how are we going to undo them? And then the, the state might have some kind of vaccination for mind control. We, we really don't know. I mean, I know that sounds paranoid and, mm. and weird, but... You know, the future is a very weird place mm. and uh, we just have mm. no guarantees. I'm just very reluctant to give more power to the state than it really needs for anything. See, I'm quite comfortable for the state to say, or, I don't know, 10-year-old girls are going to have a rubella injection whether their parents want it or not. Yeah. I've got just, no problem with that. I think you're just too trusting, Trevor. Well... Is that trust? It is trust. It's trust, trust in what? It's trust in the you know beneficence of the state, isn't it? It's trust that well, no, the state it's, it's will trust, always make the right choices. It's trust that in relation to the rubella vaccine, that that it works. That's that's all I'm limiting it to is is vaccinations that have proven scientific method behind them. So you know, if the state said, "I want everyone to undergo." Uh, cupping and aromatherapy, I'd say, well, no. <laughs> no. How do you know they won't in the future? Well, at that point, I object. But you see, like, this is where... Once you give them that power, how do you get it back? But, but you could say that about anything because yes. the, the, the government restricts our rights to practice certain things mm. all the time. They do. And, uh, and you're and comfortable we, with that. We, no, at times we accept and at times we object. But... That's the whole point of democracy and the way we live. We can't just say, I won't allow you any interference in my life because I don't trust you to get it 100% right. We accept some interference and we reject other interference and we argue the merits of each interference mm. as we come to them. Yes, indeed. But, I mean, we, we have a, a pretty decent democracy right now we you know democracy is is a fairly new thing in human history and mm. i think it's uh, a, a lot less uh, solidly established than some people assume how about this thought because uh you're really saying that the parent has has the right to make the decisions for the child in preference to the state mm. but that's um kind of treating the child as a property of the parents yeah, yeah. When in fact, um, I'm increasingly coming to the view that that it takes a village to raise a child, and it's a village that's going to be stuck with a, a psychopathic child if things go wrong. So the, the village has rights and responsibilities, 
as much as the parents yeah, look, to I, some extent. I probably read too many dystopian novels yeah. as a teenager, yeah. but I'm just really suspicious about giving too much power to the state. Yeah. It's not that I'm yeah. against vaccinations, as yeah. you know. Yes. I just think rather than mandate... We, I think education is a better way forward, you know, educate people so that they make rational choices about vaccinating their children rather than doing it because it's mandated. Um, I mentioned to you before recording that I've started reading a book called Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari, and I'm really enjoying it, and it's got it lots of stuff in there that we're going to talk about. And... A couple of weeks ago, maybe last episode, we spoke about a humanist um, refugee whose application was rejected because he couldn't identify Plato. And we thought, well, hang on a minute, there are all sorts of humanists. And, and Plato thought, was, what, 500 BC or something like that? Perhaps something like that. Was he a yeah. humanist? So it was pretty rough on this... Um, on this refugee to knock him back mm. because of a lack of knowledge of Plato. Yeah, it's pretty rough. Because there are varying, and there's varying types of humanist. Mm, indeed. And in this book on Sapiens, dear listener, it's, uh, I'm about halfway through it. And in a lot of the reviews, people say the first half's great and the second half's rubbish. And so, so far, everything I'm reading, I'm really enjoying. And it goes through the history of, of Homo sapiens and how we evolved and... Um, at one part in it talks about religion and talks about humanism and he says that there's really three kinds of humanism, 12th man, and as I was reading it, I was thinking, well, this is useful for us in these discussions that we have because I, where I call you a libertarian, but, okay, here are the three branches of humanism that this guy identifies. Liberal humanism, socialist humanism and evolutionary Humanism. So, liberal humanism, which I reckon is you, oh. I'm going to describe now. Um, humanity is individualistic and resides within each individual. The supreme commandment is to protect the inner core and freedom of each individual. Yeah, thumbs up. Sounds good. From the top man. A socialist a humanist would think that humanity is collective and resides within the species Homo sapiens as a whole. The supreme commandment is to protect equality within the species. That's not quite me. But is there such a thing as equality in the species? Well, this is the thing. This, it's, uh, you know, we have talked on this podcast about problems with inequality in the world and unfortunately it seems the only way of of redressing inequality is to is to attack some personal freedoms so uh so in order to rob from the sounds like you need to rob from the rich and give to the poor to to uh, fix inequality, and by taking from the rich, you are necessarily impinging their freedom. So there's a conflict between equality and freedom that's just inherent to some extent. But that sounds like a page out of the out of Stalin's um, sort of workbook. It, it does it? a little bit. But anyway, I'll give you the third one, which is uh, humanity is a mutate. A mutable species, humans might degenerate into subhumans or evolve into superhumans. The supreme commandment is to protect humankind 
from degenerating into subhumans and to encourage its evolution into superhumans. Yes, I, I, think, I mean, I think philosophically, sounds like Mein Kampf. <laughs> well, well, that's true. That was Doesn't Hitler. It? Yes, was sort of in a sort of a racial profiling sort of situation. It does sound a bit Mein Kampf, but it also it, it can also be a little bit of. Um, remember, we spoke about Janus uh, Faroufakis, the, the Greek former economist. Greek finance minister. Yeah said, you know, we've got a choice where we can either have a world that's like the Matrix or we can have a world that's like Star Trek and, you know, which, which way do we want to go? Yeah. Was, Look, I'm, I'm always so, suspicious of, yeah. of people who think we only have two choices, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, Don't you? maybe I'll put words into his mouth, but, yeah. you know. Uh, but I take the point. Yeah. There are opposing directions. Mm. That, um, so it could be more that way rather than a sort of a Nazi style um, breeding of the best sort of thing. So, Yeah, ev- evolutionary forces are, is an interesting topic in itself, isn't mm. it? Mm. Mm. So, so anyway, more about that later. Liberal humanism, socialist humanism and evolutionary humanism. You're definitely in the first category, think, well yeah. and truly. Mm. Yep. My four-year-old son has more diplomatic acumen than Trump and he still wets the bed. At least he's not paying Russian hookers to do it for him, I suppose. We got a, a message from one of our listeners, Twelfth Man, and uh, here's the message. It says, Hi, Fist, Glove and Twelfth. I'm currently lis- listening to episode 132, and after listening to the Twelfth Man's opinion on vaccinations, I'm wondering what his opinion is on seatbelt and helmet laws. I see them as being almost perfect parallels. Helmet and seatbelt laws are the government interfering in people's lives to protect them from themselves. Helmets and seatbelts even hurt and kill people from time to time, but we accept the negatives because they are vastly outweighed by the positives. So first of all, 12th man, you were um, unwilling to have mandatory vaccinations Mm -hmm. from memory. Yep. Because that was an imposition on civil liberties or freedoms well, or what individual as, freedom. As, as a dangerous incursion by the state into our physical integrity. Whereas, I'm sorry, uh, Greg, but I don't see them as, as, as very similar to being forced to wear a helmet on a bicycle or a seatbelt in a car. Because you can always take the helmet off and you can take the seatbelt off, but you can't take the vaccination out. Once it's performed, right? It's a, if, it's an invasion of our you know our physical integrity, and I'm I'm not saying they're harmful by by any means. I'm not a, I'm not one of those. Yes, you, you would have a vaccination. And I've, you would have, I've had many vaccinations yeah. in my life, and I'll probably have more in the future. But what I'm saying is, I think it's just a a slippery slope when you let the state start taking control of every single. Um, thing that we might think is advisable or even necessary in our lives. Now, the the thing about seatbelts in cars, obviously, that's something, you know, cars travel at high speed, they inflict incredible damage on property and other living things that they might collide with. And um, look, so, so you're happy to have a mandatory seatbelt? I'm, and, a, and I'm a, quite and happy a, with it, and I've always complied with it. Right. 
Yeah. B- bicycle helmets, I comply in Australia simply because I don't want to wear the fine. Yes. Uh, I have travelled by bicycle in several foreign countries, I, and most of the time, I'm happy to admit, I did not wear a bicycle helmet. I wore a cap that kept the sun off my face and my my neck and my ears to protect if, if, me. If you were suddenly appointed an all-powerful president of Australia, mm. would you change the laws to make it well, optional? Cycling helmets? I probably would, to be honest. Mm. I, but not seatbelts? No, not car seatbelts. No, cars are an altogether different uh, animal. You know, If you hit someone on a bicycle... Mm-hmm. Or if you fall off a bicycle, even if you hit someone with a bicycle, you're unlikely to inflict the same sort of carnage on them as you would if you hit them with a car. Um, I, I see a difference between the examples of the seatbelt and the helmet laws. Yeah. The, the difference between those and the vaccinations are that if you don't want to wear a seatbelt or a, wear a helmet, you just choose not to drive a car or ride a bike and you won't have to. But with the vaccinations, it's saying you just have to, you have if you're to, just going to, yeah. well, and, and it's if you, actually it's still the same maybe if you're, if you're going to attend a school or a public. You already know my position, Fist, mm. and that is that we should be educating people. Yes. We should be te- giving people sufficient yeah. good education about science and nature and medical science and the progress we've made with with mass vaccinations, persuade them that it's in their interest and persuade them that the vaccination they're getting or their children are getting is safe and and beneficial for them and other people around them. Mm. I just don't like the idea of the government mandating it. You've riled a few people with that one. But um, uh, next part B of, uh, of what Greg had to say is, how would you feel about a law that says parents don't have to vaccinate, but if their child is hurt or killed by a vaccine preventable illness or their child infects another person who is hurt or injured, they will be liable for charges of child endangerment, negligence, manslaughter, etc. What do you think of that? Oh, I think it's a bit silly, to be honest, because, I mean, if you do cause harm to somebody else, they can take you to court, can't they, already? Well, well but he's giving this to... example. Would you, would you say, for How example, you... if a child ended up with... Uh, some debilitative condition as a result of an illness that would have been Look, stopped by a vaccine. Should the should the child be able to sue the parents? I I work in edu- in the education industry, as you know, as mm-hmm. as a um, as a teacher. Now, should I should I take my students to court every time I come down with a cold because it's could be them that I've caught it from because I know from experience a lot of people don't cover their sneezes and we all know that we pick up these things from from the air from you know particles floating around the air from well, touching doorknobs and that's not let, let me give a closer analogy let's say for example a child is a passenger while their parent is driving and the parent is negligent in some way in driving then the child is injured mm-hmm. That child has the ability to sue their parent. They do now, don't and they, they do. Yeah. Yep. So, how would that be different to a child who um, suffered, uh, you know, uh, some sort of paraplegia or something quite significant? We're not talking just about a cold, but a, a severe, lifelong sort of disability as a result of not being vaccinated. Wouldn't 
I don't know. I would I think, think it's the same thing. They probably can see their parents now, can't they? Same. Well, I don't know if they can or can't, but what's your opinion? Should they be able to? I don't really have an opinion on it. I mean, right. people litigate for all kinds of reasons. Uh, mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't sue my parents. Um, but you would if you were, you would if you were um, uh, a, a passenger in a car accident or a, or, a, or a negligent sort of situation. Possibly, I mm. don't know. Mm. I really don't know. But I mean. I I think we can. I think we have to be because a little bit careful about where where we draw the boundaries of responsibility in a complex society where all of us are exposed to all kinds of risks in our daily lives. We can't just always look for somebody to blame for everything that happens in life, you know. And um, I, vaccinations are a terrific thing, but. Uh, as for suing people because you allege their child infected your child, I I don't know. I think that's what. What about you? Um, getting a bit litigation Scott, crazy. Scott, do you reckon that a uh, a child who suffers a major you know disability as a result of not being vaccinated should have the ability to sue their parent? Absolutely, I do. Yeah. Um, because I honestly think you should. Because you know. You hear it, you know, uh, watching television and that sort of stuff, which is just fictional, I know that, but you've, I've seen there's been a few of the anti-vaxxers have been depicted on TV series and they carry on about, you know, the, the risks and that sort of stuff. I think if these parents were held accountable for their decisions, then you would see a much more intelligent discussion about the risks of vaccines, you know. I think that if parents were held accountable for their actions, then you would end up seeing a dramatic drop in the number of people that are conscientious objectors to vaccination. Mm. Now, I also think that we should look at the question. My next question is for the whole team, blah, 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 uh, would be liable for charges of child endangerment, negligent manslaughter, et cetera. So they're talking about a criminal sanction against the parents that just that refuse to vaccinate their children. I think that, we should actually proceed down that road so that we could have some sort of criminal sanction against parents who choose not to vaccinate their kids. Gee. That will really open up the litigation floodgates, let me tell you. And, and I called you the velvet glove and I and myself the iron fist. No, when it comes to this sort of thing, I am quite hard line on it because it is absolutely... Well, well, if you recklessly endanger somebody's life, that is a criminal offence. Deliberately or well, just if you can, by the if way? You, uh, reckless. Yeah, but when you see a kid that's got whooping cough, for God's sake, mm. you know, that is absolutely bloody criminal that people are still getting whooping cough because you can get uh, vaccinated and you can get vaccinated for that for 30 years or something like that. You know, that's how long we've had the vaccine for. And yet people are still getting whooping cough now. I, I find that absolutely bloody deplorable that anyone could conduct themselves in a way and actually think that they're doing the right thing by their kids. Well, they're ignorant. You know? You know? I mean, ignorance is a terrible thing. But do you yeah. throw well, everyone that's... in jail who's ignorant? Oh, you're not everyone. You don't, you'd have only a very small number of people that would still cling to that outdated, outmoded idea. And then they would end up 
serving time, even if it's only six months or something like that, oh, it would just be a, it would only be a very small number of people that would go that far. Not, not for heaping cough, presumably, but something more serious. <laughs> or, well, or, I don't know. That, you you know. can see the headline, Hooping Cough 6, Stand Trial. <laughs> no, well, the hooping cough is probably a little bit extreme, but when you've got measles and that sort of stuff that leads to encephalitis and, uh, and uh, I'm not even sure if I used the right word then, but it leads to some sort of illness in the brain, that ends up that you end up with kids that end up being debilitated for the rest of their lives. I think in that circumstance that the parents who chose not to vaccinate their kids should bear some consequence for that. See, Twelfth Man, I think in all of this, you're prepared to give the parents almost autonomy. No, no, uh, no. No, and actually, parental responsibility. Uh, almost a property right over their child in the sense that um, that they can decide what their child can and and cannot have as 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 a property right in that they uh, or more or less own the child and can decide what to do rather than society can decide. So, so the so children that, should be property yeah. of the state rather than the parent. Well, in the same way that the state says education is mandatory for children, and we don't care what you as parents say, you must educate your child. So there are times when the state says that there's a limit to the rights that parents have over their children. Mm-hmm. So if whether a kid is educated is considered important enough for the state to take responsibility then whether the kid is unnecessarily subjected to a fatal illness is is arguably one that the state could take um, uh, the decision-making for. I just think we should tread cautiously down the path of handing over that sort of uh, power to the state. I mean, what if what if we say, okay, the state has the legal authority and power, not just the authority, but the power to vaccinate every child who's born, okay, for this this group, this range of illnesses, potential illnesses. Um, and then, as we know, with the advances of medical science, there are more and more vaccinations coming on stream. Now, what if we, we just say, okay, the state can vaccinate our kids for all these new ones that come along, whatever they think is a good thing, we trust the state. So, that, I mean, we, we know that things can go wrong. Slippery know, slope, is that the argument? We know things have gone wrong before. What if, what if they started, you know, mandate, you know, as a matter of routine, vaccinating all pregnant women for a range of things? Uh, we, we know with, from the experience with thalidomide, for example, when that was given out to thousands of women in early stage of pregnancy, everybody thought it was safe. All the doctors were con- you know, convinced it was safe, and it wasn't. So, I mean, I just don't think it's a good idea to, to hand over that power to the state just to, to make that decision for us. I think the way forward is through educating people, giving them the analytical and critical thinking skills to to make sound decisions for themselves and for their children rather than hand over power to the state it it always goes badly when you when you go down that path history shows us you give too much power to the state bad things happen 
There you go, Greg. Well, a good sort of topic to raise. Thank you for that. <laughs> and we've put forward our views and we'll wait for the Facebook comments condemning the 12th man yet again, perhaps, yeah. or... Or do you want to see myself? Maybe they'll, maybe they'll condemn me for yeah. my uh, my views on the criminal my, sanctions my, that my, should be can, imposed on parents. Maybe can you post some photos of me on my bicycle without a helmet? <laughs> okay, we'll do that. So, I actually I actually came a cropper one day on my bike and I hit a tree with fair in the, my forehead, uh, drew blood, and I survived luckily. So. It did make me make me think about yeah you know you can fall off your bike any time and a, and a helmet is definitely a good thing to be wearing if you hit your head but you know as for compelling people to wear a helmet I'm not convinced completely all right we'll, we'll move on we've covered that and then we fell in love okay no really he wrote me beautiful letters and they're great letters we fell in love. Are you familiar with Socrates, Plato and Aristotle? Just vaguely, I have to admit. Right. Are you? Uh, I don't know anything about them, so I'm a philistine. Dear listener, time for a 101 on, uh, on Greek <laughs> philosophers. This is from my book, The Quest for a Moral Compass, by Ken and Malik, one of your favourites. Yeah. And I remember saying to you, 12th man, at least 18 months ago, that you should buy this book. Oh, I have it. Oh, you've got it. You haven't oh, read it yet. I've had it for ages, but I haven't oh. finished. I, I started reading it, but, you know, as is, as is my way, I, uh, you know, I buy so many that I get started yeah. on one and then another one arrives and I start on it and I, um, <laughs> I don't tend to finish any of them. Yeah. So Socrates, he was the first of the three and uh, he was its first saint. It was, well, he was... Um, the founding father of Western philosophy considered his first saint and its first martyr because he was sentenced to death for being impious mm. and ordered to drink hemlock poison. Yeah. He refused to conform. Yes. So he was very unlike you, Fist. Yeah. So he was charged with, with being godless for being impious okay. and for being sort of subversive. And the story of of Euthyphro. Have you heard that one? So uh, so Socrates is charged with not being godly enough and he hears about this guy, Euthyphro, who's like a prosecutor and Euthyphro is actually prosecuting his own father for murder and seeking the death penalty for his own father. He sounds like a very principled man. Well, that's what he said. Euthyphro said, I am a principled man. I'm a man of God, you know, and... Socrates says, well, I need to be your pupil because I've been charged with, with being impious and you're clearly a very pious man. I need to learn from you. So um, tell me, what does it mean to be pious, to be godly? And Euthyphro said, well, you know, doing what I'm doing right now, prosecuting my father despite him being my father. And Socrates said, well, that doesn't you know, that doesn't have a general applicability. Like what's a rule that I can apply as to what's sort of godly and what isn't godly? And um, Euthyphro proposed a definition. He said, what is dear to the gods is pious, what is not is impious. But Socrates says, well, that can't be right because 
But we all know that the gods are in a state of discord and some gods see certain actions as pious while others look to different actions. He said there was a dispute amongst the gods. Socrates sounds like an argumentative bugger, doesn't he? He does. But he said something even more important. So he said, um, is something pious, as in God, is something um, good because it's loved by the gods or is it good because it's inherently good and the gods recognise it as as inherently good? And if you say it's good because the gods say it's good, then that's unacceptable because how can something just be, you know, are the gods so capricious that just anything is good just because they say it's good? Like, that doesn't make sense. He said the answer must be that something is good and the gods recognise it as being good and therefore... Goodness is independent of gods, which is a sort of a deep sort of philosophical sort of uh, it does sound uh, human intersection to, to get say, through. Yeah, yeah. It's the idea that re, you know, if if something is inherently good, then that's what you do anyway. Well, that's the principle you follow, regardless of whether it's um, supported by um, religious ethics or not. Hmm. So that was um, the key sort of Euthyphro sort of dilemma that Socrates came across. And just on Plato, he came out with, he, he basically thought that mankind's soul had three different parts, that there was the appetitive, the spiritive, and the rational parts, and that that sort of matched up with uh, labourers, soldiers, and rulers. So... Common people, driven by base desires. You've got soldiers who have a yearning for honour and you've got rulers who look for reason. And in Plato's mind, the ideal society was an aristocracy Mm. because it was governed by the ruling class who were relying on rational thought. The next best would be a military dictatorship, sort of a Sparta-type thing. If neither an aristocracy nor the sort of military dictatorship was possible, then the next best was an oligarchy. And then fourth in the line was a democracy, a society ruled by people dominated by lowly appetites for food, drink, sex and pleasure. (laughs) And the only thing worse than a democracy, in Plato's view, was uh, tyranny. (laughs) There you go. Yes. So he doesn't sound like much of a humanist, does he? Does he? Well... It's a broad church, humanism. But anyway, just in case the dear listener is one day seeking asylum in the UK and is quickly questioned on at least Socrates and Plato... Study the first few pages of uh, Kenan Malik's book. You'll, you'll have something to say. I mean, can you imagine if people didn't believe what things they'd get up to? Exact same thing they do now, just out in the open. Bull shit. It'd be a fucking freak show of murder and debauchery, and you know it. If the only thing keeping a person decent is the expectation of divine reward, then, brother, that person is a piece of shit. And I'd like to get as many of them out in the open as possible. I guess your judgment is infallible, piece of shit-wise. You gotta get together. Tell yourself stories that violate every law of the universe. Just to get through the goddamn day? No. 
What's that say about your reality, Marty? Shall I give you the article about America? Language warning, dear listener. Um, the, the title of the article is How Did a Nice Country Like America End Up Being Governed by a Big Bunch of Assholes? It's a fair description. Yes. It is a nice country um, on the whole, I think. you know, Most Americans are decent people. A lot of them are very creative. Uh, I think we have a lot to thank our American friends for uh, all in all. But, yeah, uh, of, of, of late they've been definitely um, governed by a big bunch of assholes, haven't they? Well, I'll just read uh, some highlights from the article. It's a little bit reminiscent of that article about Flaby Jockey Peterson where it really tears into people. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so this one is that the, the, the targets are still alive. Yeah. So, so this is by Evett Siliers and it says, um, how come we've got a president who is not only the biggest arsehole of all presidents ever but also the biggest arsehole among all current world leaders, the biggest arsehole among all current business leaders, the biggest asshole among all rich New Yorkers, the biggest asshole among all assholes from Queens, the biggest asshole sitting on any gold toilet, and maybe the biggest asshole among all contemporary members of the human race, with the possible exception of Ted Cruz. <laughs> and he lists the sort of elites of the country, the president, his cabinet, Congress, Supreme Court, he's claiming they're all assholes. And if our government truly represents us, there can only be one conclusion we are a nation of assholes, or if we are not a nation of assholes, then we are a nation of suckers, which may be worse. He goes on as to various um, bits and pieces about it, which I'll probably skip through. In the end, he said, perhaps the sanest American who ever lived, um, H.L. Mencken? Yes, he, wrote, he was a great, great wrote, mind and great writer. Wrote this thing back in 1920. As democracy is perfected, the office of president represents more and more closely the inner soul of the people. On some great and glorious day, the plain folk of the land will reach their heart's desire at last and the White House will be adorned by a downright moron. And that was in <laughs> 1920. You've come across some um, quotations from Mencken before, haven't you? That one sounds familiar. Oh, you come across quite a lot if you hang out with um, humanists and atheists on the internet. They will often quote Mencken. Right. He's very popular with my American friends who are atheists. Right. Mm. And he, he was a terrific writer and prolific. And he was uh, definitely not your run-of-the-mill American conformist. Yeah. Mm. Well, maybe he had read some Plato. I mean, Plato had democracy fourth on the list, society ruled by people dominated by lowly appetites for food, drink, sex and pleasure. It's a society without order or discipline. Mm. No, Mencken was definitely a terrific guy. Mm. Yeah. I run fifth and I vibe with love. Oh, shit. Now, gentlemen, last week when I was talking about Malcolm Turnbull and uh, how he was so enraptured with our relationship with the United States of Australia and I thought that was perhaps not such a great thing and you said, well, I thought you were indicating, no, 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 we need America's help because uh, the risk of Indonesia invading us is quite high. 
I mean, Indonesia, you did raise. Fair enough. So yeah, we did we did raise Indonesia, but I don't mm. think either of us thought that there was going to be a uh, an army landing on our northwest shore anytime soon. True, you know. So I don't want to overstate yeah. what you were saying, but you were concerned about anyway. As the 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 topic is, you know, should we be concerned about Indonesia invading us, and for that matter, should we be concerned about China invading us? And dear listener, a special treat for you, a new. Contributor to the podcast, Han Tu, is uh, I recorded an interview with Han just yesterday um, during a massive Brisbane thunderstorm, and um, so here it is. I'll play it for you now, and it's everything you needed to know about Australia's military and our capacity to deal with Indonesia and China in a nutshell. Dear listener, we've got a new character to introduce to you to the podcast. His pseudonym is Han Tu, and he's uh, one of my mates, and he's a bit of an expert on Indonesia. And given our discussion last week about uh, our alliance with America and how we needed to foster that because at any minute now the Indonesians could invade us, I thought I'd get um, Han Tu on to talk about Indonesia because he's a bit of an expert. So, Han, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot. Um, it's nice to be here. Lovely to be uh, invited to uh, discuss a little bit about Indonesia, a very um, important uh, part of my life. Yes. Well, just to give the listener uh, what background you can, because I understand you know, certain parts are sensitive and you can't say them, but what can you say that would give the listener some confidence that you actually know what you're talking about? Okay, uh, that, you know, that's all fair enough. Um, uh, the bottom line, I suppose, with all this is that uh, I was uh, teaching in Indonesia, in Indonesian language, to Indonesian students um, at a master's level um, and talking to them about uh, military science and uh, a few other topics related to military science. Yep, and, and you're actually considering a PhD of some sort at the moment. That's right, yeah. I've been accepted to do a PhD. I have a, um, a number of master's degrees and uh, do a PhD uh, in um, Indonesian military history and Indonesian military politics. Yep. So by way of background, last week um, I read an article that was talking about Malcolm Turnbull and how our relationship with us, with America was fantastic, as close as it could be, and we're a rock-solid ally and I was suggesting maybe that wasn't the best thing because with friends like America, at times, who needs enemies? Because they, they get us into a lot of trouble. And my colleagues on the podcast were saying, well, we really need America because what if Indonesia decides to invade us? And I put forward that the chances of that were fairly slim um, and that wasn't an issue to worry about. But am I right or am I wrong or is there a different answer, Hantu? Yeah, I, I I think that um, in in some ways that you're both right. You are absolutely absolutely right as far as Indonesia being a threat to Australia. There's no there's no doubt that in the uh, foreseeable future that uh, Indonesia poses no threat to Australia whatsoever. Um, if we look at um, how you decide whether something is a threat or not, there's two parts that you need to look at and consider. The first part is does the one party have uh, intent um, towards another party and the second part is do they have the capability 
and uh, we can look at Indonesia in that light. We can say, do they have at the present moment any intent to uh, attack Australia? And the answer to that is absolutely not. There's no no reason why Indonesia would attack Australia, no reason uh, through domestic politics, no reason through international politics. In fact, Indonesia being the largest economy in Southeast Asia is very keen to maintain its relationship with Australia because Australia provides a lot of uh, goods and a lot of services that Indonesia doesn't have and can't provide for themselves. And if you think about the food um, that Australia provides to Indonesia, beef in particular, mm-hmm. um, without that they would uh, indeed find it very difficult to um, feed their feed their people. So there's no way that they're going to stop that. And uh, to think that Indonesia would attack Australia over food is just, um, uh, in, in terms of old English or old Australians, malarkey, there's just no chance that that's going to happen. If you look at domestic politics, uh, there's no reason why Australia would be put forward as a target for Indonesia. So in in terms of intent, there's no intent for Indonesia to attack Australia. Mm-hmm. Then if we look at capability, um, Indonesia has a very large standing army, but its navy is um, really uh, a number of old rust buckets and a couple of uh, perhaps uh, ships that uh, would hardly pose any sort of threat to anybody except themselves. How's, and, their, how's um, their submarine going? Well, I, I used to laugh because uh, some of the guys I knew over there would uh, collect their submarine every every year. They had a, an old Russian whiskey-class submarine and it was tied up to the dock and every year they'd all climb aboard and the uh, the submarine would be submerged at the dock and they had a crane there just in case the thing couldn't make it up again. Um, and, but doing that, they all, you know, oh, gee, that's over for another year where I can collect my submariners pipe. And, um, that's, that's about their capability with, uh, submarines. They really, um, are not, uh, able to, uh, operate in, uh, what we would call blue water. They, they would have, they are capable perhaps in white water, but, uh, white water, if you look on a, on a naval map, you'll see that, uh, there's white water, which is shallow and blue water, which is deep. Mm-hmm. And it's unlikely that they would operate very successfully outside of their own archipelago. So for them to mount some sort of a martyr, um, let's go back one step and look at what you would need militarily to um, have a beachhead on Australia. Mm -hmm. In 1942, the Japanese did a very large study um, of what they would require to form a beachhead in the north of Australia, and they found that when they did their uh, all their estimates, that they would need a minimum of nine divisions. Nine divisions means uh, something in order of 100,000 supported soldiers um, landed in the one place at the one time. So somehow you've got to get all those people from one place to another. The Japanese. How, how many people could you put on a troop ship? Like if you're having, how many? Well, if, you know, how long's a piece of string? Um, how big's the troop ship? You know, if you look at something like the Canberra that was used in the Falklands, you yep. might get, uh, something in the order of three or four thousand onto each ship. Um, if you look at uh, a big luxury cru- cru- cruise liner that you might want to convert into a troop ship, you could probably think about putting a division on that without equipment because they are able to take uh, the people, but then you've got to have all the equipment. You've got to think about the support equipment, the vehicles, the tanks, the artillery, and on and on it goes. And all this stuff has to be um, transported on cargo ships. So you would have an armada of uh, civilian vessels that would be escorted 
because they don't have the military vessels to take any sort anything like that number of people. Um, you'd have to have um, civilian ships that have been converted, and then um, the difficulty is getting these. These are not roll-on, roll-off type ships, and so it'd be quite difficult to land all this equipment uh, in yeah. a very short period of time. Specialised military ships even find it difficult to do this sort of thing. And in fact, American Australia every two years uh, operate um, in off the Queensland coast, Rockhampton. We're all aware of the exercises that take place off there mm-hmm. to actually do this and land, you know, some few hundred, a uh, few thousand troops in in an exercise. Whereas we're talking now trying to land a hundred thousand troops to be really quite effective, and that's just not um, possible for the Indonesians. They don't have the shipping. They don't have the naval vessels to support that that type of uh, armada that would have to be formed. They don't have the air support. They don't have surveillance. They don't have any submarine warfare. And in order to develop all those sort of capabilities takes a very, very long time. It's not a matter of just going out and buying the ships. For us uh, in Australia, we have long been looking at uh, anti-submarine warfare, anti-surface warfare. We've looked at submarines, and as as we've seen, we're going to spend another $50 billion on submarines to support our capability north of Australia to stop somebody from actually landing on Australia. It's a bit of a sore point with me, um, to the $50 billion on some on those submarines, but we'll bypass that for the moment. Keep, keep going. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't... I don't necessarily support the spending of that sort of money on submarines but um that is what the government's decided to do and uh, they've decided submarines are the, the best deterrent at this point in time to stop people coming across the air sea gap so if you think about um aircraft if you, you say okay well we won't do it by ship we'll do it by aircraft and we'll have paratroopers come to australia and we'll transport them in in um in aircraft now if you look at um a normal um, sort of aircraft like a C-130, which would be uh, capable of uh, dropping paratroopers, something like that uh, will carry probably 80 to 100 fully armed uh, men that are going to drop out of the aircraft. And uh, so you can do the maths as well yeah. as I can. If you want to do 100,000, you need a 1,000 aircraft. And yeah. um, they've got, you know, a very small number of aircraft uh, that are capable of uh, dropping off paratroops. And uh, most of those are old uh, B-model Hercules aircraft, and they're pretty much beyond their capability at this point in time. So the Indonesians neither have intent nor do they have capability, and the capability, we would see them building the capability. They would be uh, giving us some sort of indication of their intent a long time before they would even be capable of doing anything against Australia. So yep. you really need to be thinking... 10 years uh, advanced lead time from when you start developing these sort of capabilities, you're probably even thinking more like 20 years, particularly against, uh, you know, an angry um, Western well-developed society like ours that has uh, quite a lot of high technology, cap- you know, high technology available to us in, um, in, in a military sense. So you've got to then try and counter the technology that the opposition has, and the Indonesians would take a very, very long time to develop any sort of level of capability, skills to counter Australia. Okay. In, in so, so let's accept then that Indonesia is such a long way off that we could see it coming a mile away and do something about it if if it was mm. going to happen. What about China? If China decided to, you know, att- this is when us. this is when you start looking at uh, who your friends are 
Yeah. And um, and that's why at the very start I go back to the comment that I said that you're both right in many ways. Yeah. Um, and you're right as far as Indonesia is concerned, but you, you know your your colleague is also right as far as having America as a friend. Yeah. Um, think about Ch- China at the moment um, have some experimental aircraft of one aircraft carrier. They could probably mount a couple of squadrons of, of aircraft and they have not even a full carrier group available to them at the present time. And America usually around the place operates four full carrier groups. So when you look at American capability versus Chinese capability, it's cheese and chalk for power projection. Yep. And so the Chinese uh, attempting to project power through the Indonesian archipelago would also find it very difficult. This is why we need to keep Indonesia as a friend because, A, the Indonesians would want to stop them from projecting power through their archipelago in the first instance. Yep. And they they would need to do that because to get to Australia, there's really three routes through Indonesia or around New Guinea or you're going to have to come a very long way around. And to do that, our capability with um, our submarines our anti-surface uh, capability and our anti-subsurface capability would make it very difficult for even the Chinese to bring an armada large enough to actually land on Australian soil. Yep. Now, it's, it's, it's well and good to say, oh, they've got a million soldiers, but, you know, how are they going to get here? They're going to swim. Yep. You know, that's, that's the bottom line. That's why our white papers have always focused on the air-sea gap to the north of Australia and have always said that any threat to Australia would be through, not necessarily from, the Indonesian archipelago, and that's a big distinction between those two things. And even China at this point in time, there is no way that they could threaten Australia in that way. Right, yep. Okay, let's assume that China uh, ramps up and gets enough equipment. Can we trust the Americans to help us? If oh, Well, that's that's a question that you've got to ask. So when... When you look at spending on uh, on on military, on arms, and all that sort of stuff, and the actual uh, money that's spent around the world, America um, outspends everyone else combined. Mm. And so you look at you look at that and you go, if you look at all the wars that have been fought since uh, Vietnam, who who has won, and which side do you think it, it's best to be on? Whether they are likely to support you or not, and the answer is is that uh, if you're on the American side, you're going to win. Um, if you're on the American side, you're not likely to lose. Um, let's put it that way. Because unless you're in, a, unless you're in Afghanistan, maybe. Or, well, I mean, it's interesting you talk about these places. Yeah. It's, um, you know, who wins, who loses. Um, if you want to go back to the 1970s and talk about Vietnam, everyone talks about um, you know how America lost the war in Vietnam. Um, yeah. American ha- has America really lost the war? If you're, you know. Uh, you know, living in middle-class America, um, you've got a pretty nice life. If you're living in Vietnam, until very recently, you were still living in the Stone Age. Yes. So who won and who lost? You know, that's that's a it, it's a moot point. Yeah, but had know, had they never the war. had they never entered yeah. Vietnam, the people still would have a very comfortable life in North America, irrespective. But I, I guess that that one doesn't matter so much. But um, well, uh, it's it's. It's where you've got to look at, uh, at history and about the insurance policies that Australia has taken over the last, uh, you know, 50 years yep. um, in order to think that we are safe from, you know, threats of a, of a more global nature. You know, you, you look at Russia and, 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 again, is Russia a threat to Australia? Do they have the capability? Yeah, they, they probably could if they 
focused all of their military capability and all their transport capability on coming to Australia, but it's a hell of a long way. Yep. And, you know, if you've got friends like America, you know, the Russians showed in World War Two how you need to uh, fight these sort of wars and uh, it's to it's to burn behind uh, as you go. As you fight all the way from point A to point B, you, you just have a scorched earth policy so that uh, they, their lines of communication, their lines of supply get longer and longer and longer and more difficult, more difficult, and your lines of supply get shorter and shorter. You know, Kokoda is a very good example of that. Um, we could have done a much better in Malaysia uh, before the fall of Singapore had the Australian High Command had its way because Australia wanted to use a scorched earth policy against the Japanese, but the Brits thought that Fortress Singapore was... Uh, was impregnable, and so they said, "No, we don't need to have that sort of policy." Um, of course, uh, as we know now, in retrospect, uh, the Brits were wrong, um, yep. and the scorched earth policy would have worked uh, uh, much better than their plan. Yep. So, uh, when talking minor countries, you know, like Indonesia, they just don't have the capability. When we're talking major countries like China or Russia, we could assume the Americans would be interested enough to stop them dominating uh, this part of the world and would would step in just um, in terms of protecting their own patch, if if nothing else. Mm. That's an interesting assumption. You know, um, yeah, I, I like the word you used. We can assume. Yep. Um, um, I I tend to think more. Well, it's like a question. So <laughs> we can hope. Right. <laughs> we can hope that that's what's going to happen. Um, yep. Again. Uh, you know, China would have to, we would see the threat coming. Um, at the moment, there is no intent from China, yep. Um, yep. let alone do they have the capability. There is no intent, and so the threat doesn't exist. Um, do they have the capability in, in the future? Should they change their intent? Uh, that's, a, that's another good question, and uh, I would have to sit down and carefully look at what uh, the Chinese capability is, but even the capability Australia has today would probably be enough to counter a, an, a you know an attack from China because the distances that are involved the capability the amount of equipment the amount of people that you need to land is yeah. is enormous yep. to actually try and form that beachhead yep. and um, it's you know you're talking superpower stuff to, to get to this point yep. and China is not yet in the realms of a military superpower and Russia is probably past its prime. Yep. And uh, the Americans could do it, uh, but, you know, stay on the right side of America, no intent, uh, capability. Do the Americans have the capability? Yes, they do, but they don't have intent, so America doesn't form a threat. Yep. So you stay on the right side of the Americans, which I think is uh, a very good policy and the insurance that we've taken out by going into Afghanistan, by uh, supporting them in Iraq and these other places, that has um, given us, the insurance policy that we need, I think, do, uh, to... Do you think it does, though? Do you think that... Do you think, like, the present administration with Trump, do you think that cuts anything with him? Like, if if somebody did decide to invade us, somebody like Trump, I just have the feeling, wouldn't, wouldn't pay heed to any of that history and would just decide in the moment whether it was worth him with America's interests getting involved or not, and wouldn't care about the history. Mm. It's interesting that you raise that point. And, and the point that I would raise, it was actually, I was watching Question Time today uh, for the federal parliament, and 
Peter Dutton got out uh, to answer a question uh, concerning uh, Manus and Nauru, and uh, he quoted some facts. Um, I think that another 135 had gone from Manus and Nauru to the United States, and they had actually departed, and uh, the United States had accepted these people. Now, that uh, agreement had been made between Turnbull and Obama, and Trump said that he would not honour that and finally came around to honouring that agreement. And that agreement has been honoured. Yep. And it's totally against what he personally wanted to do. However, the administration uh, in the United States had enough power to convince him that he needed to honour his uh, America's commitments to Australia and to anybody else. And so I think you can take that as a an indicator as to which way it would go. And I believe because of the history and because of the way we have acted over the past, um, you know, it's getting on towards 80 or 90 years, um, I think that uh, we would be able to count on the Americans for a lot of support. Okay, Orhan too, I think you covered the Indonesian issue for the dear listener and um, and I'll call on you again in the future as issues crop up yep i'm willing and pleased to be part of such a wonderful podcast <laughs> all right hantu i'll let you get back to whatever you were you were doing and um i'll see you thursday night <laughs> all right mate all good all right thanks mate see ya Catch you then. Bye. Yeah, bye. so there you go gentlemen that's hantu and hopefully we'll hear from him down the track the government is very confident that the court will not find the member for New England is disqualified from being a member of this House. Very confident indeed. The leader of the National Party, the Deputy Prime Minister, is qualified to sit in this House and the High Court will so hold. I think that allowing for the book being, after all, a parody, something like 1984 could actually happen. This is the direction the world is going in at the present time. In our world, there will be no emotions except fear, rage, triumph and self-abasement. The sex instinct will be eradicated. We shall abolish the orgasm. There will be no loyalty except loyalty to the party. But always there will be the intoxication of power. Always, at every moment, there will be the thrill of victory, the sensation of trampling on an enemy who is helpless. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. The moral to be drawn from this dangerous nightmare situation is a simple one. Don't let it happen. It depends on you. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone 
and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe... You really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.